the loss of her Savior, mourning the loss of their, fe- of their friend. And she goes running to the tomb. And she's shocked because the tomb's stone is rolled away. And she goes in just like I would have gone in. She goes into the tomb and she starts looking for Christ. And then she gets startled. And an angel, te- and an angel tells her, why are, you looking for, why are you looking for someone that's alive amongst the dead? In fact, it says exactly, Luke 24, verse 5, it says, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? By jury, and all the evidence is presented. And at the end, you have the defense attorney and a prosecuting attorney, and they give their closing argument. Okay. Well, I'm going to be one of those guys today. Whether you want me to be the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney is depending on how the sermon strikes you, I suppose. But what I would do is I would give a case for a proper perspective. Because I feel that one of the problems that we have in life is, as a human being with a sin nature, we have trouble maintaining what we determine to be a proper perspective on life. One of the things that I think happens to people so many times is that a stimulus, whatever it is, comes into your life. And obviously, when you have a stimulus, according to science, we know how knowledgeable they are, they say there's going to be a response. I know that's true of my own life. If there's a stimulus in my life, I respond to it in one way or another. It might be good, and it might be bad, and it might be indifferent. But regardless, when something happens in my life, there's a response people expect to see in me. Depending on my perspective in life of that situation, it's going to determine how I respond. Now, this morning's special music was really interesting because it really went along with the sermon. Uh, Trust in the Lord and acknowledge Him. He'll light thy paths. He'll direct thy way. These things determine a proper perspective, but... When you hear those things, they're all very much, in Christian circles, we would say, ear candy. They all sound good. They're all great. They all sound, you know, like the optimum way to do things. But what does it mean? How is it that we can trust in the Lord? How is it that we can acknowledge Him? How is it that we can allow Him to to direct our path? Because so many times in life, things don't appear as cut and dried as we'd like God to show them to us. I once heard a great pastor describe it to me like this. That the perspective that we have here on earth is a horizontal one. We can see things around us. But when we look up to heaven, it is very confusing sometimes. And we really don't understand what God's plan is. Yet, on the other hand, God is in heaven, and he's weaving this latchuk rug, and it's a perfect mosaic. It's gorgeous. But anybody ever see a latchuk rug from the bottom? It's a nightmare. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I think sometimes what happens is we base our perspective on the bottom of that latchuk rug. And we say we want to trust the Lord, and we say we want to acknowledge Him, but we really don't understand what that means. 
And most of all, we don't really understand what end we're heading towards. So we feel that we're confused and we feel that things are unclear in our life. I think there are some basic principles that we forget. And the primary thing is our sin nature gets involved in keeping us from seeing what God is seeing as far as the big picture. Now, when we talk about acknowledging the Lord and trusting the Lord, essentially what we're saying is that we're going to let the big picture up to Him. And the little things in our life that are within our control, within our boundaries, within our grasp, those things God has rendered unto us, and according to the Word of God, He's going to allow us to either react, He's going to allow us to react either good or bad. Because there is such a thing called as the free will of man. We can choose to sin. We can choose to do righteousness. And I believe that just as atoms make up the large structure of the whole, do you think each atom sees the whole piece? But each atom needs to be doing its job in perfect coordination with another one in order for the whole structure to exist. And I believe that's how it is. With us, I believe that all of creation is a mirror of what God has intended for us to be spiritually true in our life. Take marriage, for instance. The union of a man and a woman. And look at the body of Christ. We are the bride and he is the groom. These things emulate what is true spiritually in our lives. So if we are living a righteous life, if we are reacting in a positive godly way to situations in our life. I believe that we are responding in such a way as to create the whole, to work together for the picture that God is creating. There was a movie about a fellow by the name of Sergeant York. And I, I don't know, Bob, Gary Cooper? Uh, okay, I get a nod, that, I'm right. I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. And this fella was a farmer. His dad was a farmer. They were very poor. And he desperately wanted a piece of prime valley farmland. Farming in the mountains is a little tough because the erosion has taken place and the topsoil is not very good. But down in the valley is where it all has gone. And that's where the rich farming takes place. And that's what he wanted. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked. And he saved his money, and he vowed he was going to have it, only to have the piece of land he wanted sold from out from underneath him to somebody else. Then the Korean War called, and he went there. And he was a hero. And when he came back, the people of his town devoted to him for his heroism and his uh, famous name now, gave him a piece of land that was very valuable. Then on the other hand, you have people who are athletes who devote their life to training and working out and excelling in a sport. I think of ice skaters skating 10, 12 hours a day, even as children, giving up their childhoods in order to be famous. How many of them really come to the top? Christy Yamaguchi. How many, how many people really know other than Nancy Kerrigan, other than a, a couple names, all of the people that are involved with this. Some are exalted to fame and glory. Some waste a lot of money and time in their childhood. 
Gymnast is another thing you look at. Football players, baseball players, and it goes on and on. Some train and excel and put forth a lot of effort to become to come to fame and glory, and some come to not. Where's the rhyme or reason? Some have little reward and some have great reward. And I think the same is true in Christian lives. I think there are some believers who feel like they have devoted themselves to God's word, to trying to live the Christian life, to doing the right thing, and all God does is keep pushing them back and keeping them down. And other people, they feel like they hardly, they look at other people and they say, you know, how is it that they get exalted? How is it that God recognizes them? How is it that they've become somebody? Jesus said that when we compare ourselves amongst ourselves, that we're not wise. Jesus also makes it very clear that he will, God made it very clear that he will exalt who he, who he chooses to exalt and he will humble who he chooses to humble. I think the problem with our proper perspective is indeed the sin nature. Our sin nature is very controlling and demanding. Our sin nature wants to get in the way of God's sovereignty. And that's where I'd like to take you right now. And in order to do that, I'd like to use a guy by the name of Job. Now, I told Paul Wagner this morning that I was going to manage to get a plug for my Job class in here, so I'm going to do it right now. I'd like you to take your Bibles and open them to Job chapter 13. Now, while you're turning there, let me just give you a little context on this fellow named Job. In the book of Job, in chapter 1, verse 1, God himself makes the declaration of Job that he was a righteous, upright, and blameless man. And that there was no other men like him. He tells Satan, there's, none other, there's no other man like Job in all of the earth. And so when we're introduced to Job, we're introduced to a man who God positionally has placed as a, quote, righteous man. God has commended him with a badge of honor. And so it is with the believer. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. In other words, by trusting in Jesus Christ, we have met every requirement of the law. We have been forgiven of the sins that we have committed, the laws that we have broken. And from this point forward, when God sees us, he sees his beloved son. In Christ, we are upright, blameless, and righteous. So we share the same title that Job shares in Job chapter 1, verse 1. When the book of Job starts, Job has very much wealth. However, not only is his wealth taken away from him, but his family is taken away from him, and his health is taken away from him. And Job begins to suffer greatly. And do you remember I was speaking about how we feel we devote ourselves so greatly to our Christian life, and yet we wonder, God, where is the blessing? God, where is the exaltation? God, where is the privilege? God, where is the benefit? And we go on and on with that. And I said that our sin nature is that perspective problem that we have. Guess who, ha guess who it happened to? It happened to Job. Proof of that comes here in Job chapter 13. And there's many other places it shows up, but this is just one that I felt that I would share this morning. Job makes a bold statement in verse 18 to every man who can hear him. And he says, Behold, now I have prepared my case. I know that I will be vindicated. Verse 19, he says, Who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. 
Job says, if any man here has a case as to proof that I am not a righteous man, that I have not lived a godly life, that I do not deserve what is happening to me today, then let him speak now, or so to speak, at a wedding, forever hold his peace. Job said, if any man can bring case against me and prove it, he says, then I will shut up and I will die right here on the spot, never to speak again. Do you think Job was pretty convinced of his own righteousness? Now, maybe he had a case. Maybe he had a case because God did say of him that he was blameless and upright and righteous. But nonetheless, was Job suffering as a result of sin? Job was not suffering as a result of sin. Job was suffering by the sovereign hand and will of God in proving to Satan that even though no matter what Satan could do to this man, Job would not curse God. That was what was taking place on the spiritual realm. But Job couldn't see it. And Job didn't know. And now Job is starting to get angry with God because of what's taking place. Job has a perspective problem, doesn't he? Job can't see what God can see. And so Job's starting to make some wrong decisions. Job goes on in verse 20 to speak to God and he says, Two things do not do to me, then I will not hide from your face. The first thing he asked in verse 21 is he says, remove your hand from me. Then he says, and let not the dread of you terrify me. So he's telling God two things. He's saying, God, I want you to take all of this away from me in my life right now because I can't take it. And he says, God, I want to be able to come into your presence without having to be terrified. I want to know that you are a God that I can come to. Now, that's something that an Old Testament saint didn't have. And that's something that we as New Testament saints can come boldly before the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Job is asking for something we possess. I just want to point that out. So Job is basically telling God, you need to take all of this away. You need to stop this, God. Verse 22, Job says that if God does those things, something's going to happen. He says in the beginning of verse 22, that if you call me, I will answer. Then he said, let me speak, then reply to me. In other words, Job is placing conditions on God. Job is saying that if you call to me, God, then I'll answer. But right now, I'm kind of angry with you. There's kind of a difference between us, God. We're separated from each other in fellowship because I'm, I'm a little bit upset about what's taking place here. The next thing he says in the end of verse 22 is he says, let me speak. Then reply to me. He's saying, God, I'm tired of hearing from you. I'm tired of this message. I have a few things that I'd like to say to you, God. And I want you to listen. Then you can talk to me, God. Then you can tell me what's going on. God, what I want to know is why is this taking place? Then you answer me, God. Do you think Job might just a little bit have a perspective problem? In verse 23, the first thing that he had asked for was for God to remove his hand from me. And in verse 23, he says, God, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and sin. 
Now, Job does not believe that he has any iniquities. Job does not believe he has any rebellion and sin. Because in the beginning of this passage, in verses 18 and 19, he says, Who would contend with me? If you've got case against me, I'll shut up and die right now, Job says. So Job is asking a rhetorical question to God. He says, What are my iniquities? What is my rebellion and sin? What have I done to you, God? The second thing he says is remove the fear of dread. Uh, let not the dread of you terrify me at the end of verse 21. Verses 24 and 25 clarify that. He says, excuse me, verse uh, 25 says, Will you cause a driven leaf to tremble? Will you pursue the dry chaff? In other words, what he's saying is, the fear of God is causing him to tremble. And what he's saying is, God is just doing these things to him in order to put him into submission. To help him to know his place. To know that God is God and God is just putting him down just to prove to him that he's a man and God is God. And that this is not fair. This is not right. That he does nothing to deserve this. Job definitely has a perspective problem. Now page forward. Go on all the way back to Job chapter 40. If you think for one minute that God is awesome then you're right. Because in Job chapter 40, God comes to talk to Job. And he says to Job in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 14. Job says in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now, let him who reproves God answer it was not a general question to all of humanity saying, if there's anybody who wants to contend with me, come forward now and speak. That was a question that was a statement that was pointed directly at Job. He is speaking one-on-one -on -one with Job right now, and he's calling Job a fault finder. And he says to Job, why don't you like stand forward right now, Job, and take me on? You were demanding all these things from me. Here I am. Have any of us ever been in that situation where you maybe badmouthed somebody? Maybe it was in school when you were young and stupid and did things that you really shouldn't have done. And you went around badmouthing the bully. He's such a jerk. You know, he, he does these things and he does that things. And then the next thing you know, you're standing face to face and he's like, uh, what is it you wanted to say about me? Do you remember that feeling? What do you think about Job? How would you like to stand before God and have God ask you, what is it that you said about me? Would you like to clarify that right now? Would you like to deal with that? Well, here I am. You can imagine Job's feelings at that time. Watch what he says in verses 3 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken... And I will not answer, even twice, and uh, I will add nothing more. Job was petrified. He was absolutely awestruck. He didn't know what to say. Job had bitten off just a bit more than he could chew. And now came the time to put his money where his mouth was, and he didn't have any to put up. So in verse 6, God begins to challenge Job. And he says in verse 6, Now the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. 
So God's going to ask him a series of questions and challenges. And he wants Job to give him some advice on these things. He says in verse 8, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you might be justified? Will you condemn me that you might be justified? How many of you in here have questioned the parent's wisdom in your life? How many of you here questioning the parent's wisdom in your life have said, my parents are wrong. My parents are unjust. My parents are not fair. In reality, your parent was the one who was doing the right thing. And your parent comes to you and says, you're telling me that I'm stupid? You're questioning my justice? You're questioning my authority? We've all been there. I was a teenager. I know what it's all about. And when I was 26 years old, I said to myself, my dad is smarter than me. It finally dawned on me. And I believe that God is saying to Job, you have no right to do these things, but he's asking it in the form of a rhetorical question. Verse 9, he says, do you have an arm like this? Can you thunder with a voice like this? You know, my kids have all at one time or another, because believe it or not, I'm really pretty much a sensitive, mild guy. I don't like to get wound up. But my kids have seen the point where they pushed me over the edge. And when I go over the edge, I become ballistic. And I get loud. And I yell. And then afterwards, I have to repent because I was wrong. But when... I go that way, I thunder with a voice like this. And all of my kids probably at one time or another have been like grossly intimidated because I went nuts on them. God has every right to go nuts on us whenever he feels like it. He's not one who sins. If he goes nuts on somebody, it's because it's just. And I'm picturing that right now when he says the voice, can, can you thunder with a voice like this? I have no doubt in my mind that when it came time to say those very words, his voice went up several octaves or decibels or whatever you want to call it. I can see Job's hair blowing back on his head. <laughs> Verse 10, he challenges Job. He says, do this. He says, how about you adorn yourself with eminence and dignity? And how about you clothe yourself with honor and majesty? How about you put on the glory of God, God says. He says, or how about this, Job, in verses 11 to 13. He says, how about you pour out the overflowings of anger and look upon everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them into dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. How about you judge wickedness, Job? How about you show me how to do that? And in verse 14, he makes Job a promise. He says, if you can do these things, Job, he says, I will confess to you that then your own right hand can save you, Job. If you can do all these things I just said to you, Job, he says, then I confess to you that you're just in all of your judgments about me and my unfairness. So, folks, I just wanted to, like, clarify there that God is indeed sovereign. I just wanted to clarify there to you that one of the most upright, blameless, and righteous men who ever lived was capable of having a perspective problem. So therefore, I don't think there's one of us in here who is greater than Job. I think all of us are capable of having a perspective problem when it comes to God's will for our life. 
Well, let's talk about God's will for our life. I'm going to say something right now, and I want you to remember what I'm going to say. I want you to write this down on that piece of rock in your brain that you never, ever, ever forget anything. Christ died to enable us to serve him, not for us to be served by him. Christ died to enable us to serve him, not for us to be served by him. I want to tell you, from my perspective, what I see in the United States today and in the world today, Christ is the great provider. Christ is the great do for me. Christ is the great fire escape from hell. But don't ask me to do anything. Just give me. And we all have this attitude that God is going to do for us. God is going to provide for us. That God has to do that. Why, if he sent his son to die for us, how much more will he not give us? Jesus promises us that if it's according to will of God, God will do these things for us. Jesus prayed in the garden about his own crucifixion. Not my will, but thy will be done. But we lose that perspective. And we become demanding and arrogant. And we say to God, who will contend with me? Who will argue with me? In our own minds, we justify ourselves to the nth degree in our relationships and things that happen. And we bear ourselves without guilt, yet we don't judge ourselves by God's standard. When Christ died for us, he provided for us salvation. It says in Mark 10, 45, that for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the effect of the salvation that we have in the sense that he gave his life as a ransom for us. We find in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And down in verse 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. We were dead and now we're alive. When we were dead, we could not serve God. We had to be made alive so that the very first time in our human physical experience, we could now serve God. And my challenge to you is this. That in your life, your Christian experience is all about one thing. And it isn't you. That's depressing. Because I was kind of hoping it was. <laughs> we all are. We're all very self-centered, very self-focused, very self-righteous. But we were dead and now we are alive. And the reason we have been made alive, the reason we have been raised with Christ, the reason we have been endowed with the Holy Spirit, is for the very first time in our life, we now have the opportunity to serve God and to please God. That's a proper perspective. Not whether or not your feelings are hurt. Not whether or not you're suffering. Not whether or not there's enough money in the bank. Not whether or not so-and-so likes you. Not whether or not the boy is pecking on you. How will you react in those situations? Will you react in a godly way? 
or you re- will you react like the guy who was dead in his trespasses and sin? Or will you react like the one who has been made alive through the Spirit of Christ? That's the proper perspective. You see, Job became arrogant and demanding. And Job began to want to know of God, why, 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 why? Job forgot his place. And at the end of the book, when Job comes under judgment, it's for that reason. An interesting parable is this, and it concerns the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10. If you want to turn there, you may, but you don't have to. I'm going to read it for you quickly. Which of you having a slave... Jesus says, plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he rather not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterwards, you might eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because of the things that he commanded him to do, does he? And Jesus reaches the point. which are commanded you should say we are unworthy slaves we've only done that which we ought to have done that's the call Jesus has for his followers we ought to say in right and when we do a deed of righteousness I've only done that which I've commanded to do anybody who does a deed or an act of righteousness should not expect any reward from God Now, God promises that he will do that. But for us to place preconditions on God is wrong. We are only doing that which we have been commanded to do. And if God chooses to reward, so be it. There was a guy that got five talents, a guy that got three talents, a guy that got one. That was all an arbitrary choice by the master. There was men who worked in the field from nine to nine and they got a full day's wage. And there was men that worked from 6 to 9 and they got the same pay as the guys that worked 12 hours and they were upset. Did they not agree to do that? That was a choice of the master. And so it is with us. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, Paul exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 verse 45, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what... I say. The last thing I want to talk about here in the last couple minutes is unity. We have salvation. Upon salvation, we recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I firmly believe that if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God places upon you when it comes to indwell you the recognition of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all men, the Bible says, whether they choose to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So you, you, can, you can either choose now or you can choose then, but there's going to come a day you're going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I implore you to recognize the day is now. It would go much better to do that. We have salvation, we have lordship of Jesus Christ. The last thing we have is unity of the church. In our salvation of our souls, we have the lordship of Christ. And in order to maintain 
righteousness. In order to maintain service to the Master, it was necessary for Him to give us the Spirit to dwell within us. And it is that very Spirit that creates unity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he begins the chapter by saying, if there is any encouragement... If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection or compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in, one spirit, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You see, I said at the beginning of this sermon that this would be a closing argument. And when Paul begins his argument in Philippians chapter 2, you can hear a lawyer saying these very things. If there is any consolation of love, if there is any affection, he's pleading. And his plea leads to being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I want to close with the example of Jesus Christ. Paul leads up then in verse 5 by saying this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be laid hold of. Rather, verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Do you know what a bondservant is? A bondservant is somebody who has been freed by the master to go his own way. That happened when we got saved. But then the servant who was freed in salvation, the master let him go. He says, your debt has been paid. You may go. That servant turns around and he says, no, master, I'm not leaving. He says, I indebt myself to you. For the rest of my life because of my love for you that's a bond servant he has voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the master and he chooses to stay with him and what Paul is saying that Christ emptied himself and humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death even on a cross verse 9 says for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name which is above every other name. And folks, I'm here to tell you this today as I close. Humble yourself before Almighty God and he will exalt you at the proper time. In your life, you are going to suffer. You're going to encounter poverty. You're going to encounter pain. But you need to react in a godly way. Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. You need to recognize that and you need to react accordingly. And God will exalt you at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we thank you for the clarity that it brings. And we thank you, Father, for the people who are here this morning. Father, we thank you for their submission to coming to church to worship you and to hear your word. And to be inspired and led by it. Father, I pray that you would bless their hearts to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.